This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for October 25th, 2019. In this week's episode, a new two-factor scam, Samsung's fingerprint scanner flaw, Firefox and social tracking, and really, really, really long passwords. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Hey, Josh, do you ever put screen protectors on your iPhones? Um, no, I have not. Uh, and I've never really gotten a deep scratch. Maybe I'm just lucky. No, neither have I. I've never done that. I was actually surprised when I got my iPhone 11 in the Apple store. They were vigorously upselling screen protectors. And they had a, some sort of a device that they would put the phone in and then put the screen protector. It was one of those really thin glass screen protectors. And I think the device would like apply pressure. Um, to make sure there's no bubbles in it. And I asked how much they cost. I think they were 29 pounds for the small phone and 39 or 49 for the bigger phone, which if you have Apple care is the cost of a broken screen. Uh And I just never saw the idea of having a screen protector. I only had a screen protector back in the day when I had a Palm Pilot, because if you remember those screens, they weren't glass, they were plastic and they could scratch pretty easily. Right. I did have a screen protector back in those days too. Interestingly, it seems that a lot of people use screen protectors, as Samsung found out recently. Um, Samsung has been using a fingerprint sensor in the screen, which in some ways is a good idea because you don't have to have that extra space down below, you know, where the home button used to be on an iPhone or where it still is on an iPad. And it turned out that um, any fingerprint could unlock a Samsung phone with a screen protector. Oh, my yeah, this was kind of a nightmare for Samsung. Essentially, what happened here is that they, when they were doing their QA quality assurance testing, they only tested this phone with their screen protectors that they wanted you to use with their phone. And so if somebody had a favorite screen protector brand that they really wanted to use with their phone, and they put that other brand of screen protector on, now essentially that would weaken their uh, thumbprint so or whatever finger they wanted to use to the point that it essentially anybody could just come along almost and just stick a finger on there and uh, it would accept it and just let anybody into your phone. Yeah, we'll link to an article on Mac Rumors and it seems that um, any small air gap between the screen and the screen protector could affect the scanning, which used ultrasound to detect the microscopic ridges that make every fingerprint unique. And what I don't understand is it's not like your fingerprint is close to mine. And if there was a tiny bubble, it would make a mistake on one of those ridges. But essentially anyone could log into a phone if that screen protector was on. In other words, it was defeating the entire process. Right. Right. Yeah. And this is not the first time that something like this has happened. There have been uh, Android phones in the past where, you know, the uh, facial recognition technology 
could be bypassed essentially just by using a picture of somebody. And it's gotten better since then. But I mean, that's pretty bad if you can just hold up a photograph of somebody and log into their phone. Um, so, you know, Apple really has done a good job for as much as people like to complain and say, oh, face ID is not perfect or touch ID is not, you know, that great. Uh, they're better technologies than on some of the competitors anyway. Yeah, I even saw on Twitter today, um, someone had gotten a text message from a bank saying that their phone would no longer be supported for their banking app because it was one of these Samsung phones. And for me, the litmus test of whether a security feature like this is reliable or not is whether banks accept it. Um, Because there's too much at stake for banks to risk. And they've always accepted Touch ID and Face ID. Uh, I had a Microsoft phone some years ago that I bought to try out. And their Face ID... Well, they didn't call it face ID, but face recognition was almost laughable. Uh, I think you could even do it with your eyes closed. Hmm. Yeah, well, and that is something that uh, Apple does a little bit better. They do some eye tracking and things like that to make sure that you're actually looking at the screen by default. Uh, you you actually do have to be looking at the screen in order for Face ID to work. Um, if you've never tried this, uh, you can try it out and see for yourself that if you uh, you know unlock your phone and you're not looking at it and you wait several seconds and then look at the screen, it will only unlock once you look at the screen. Yeah, yeah. And, and I believe I read recently that Apple's working on a way to improve Face ID so it will work better if your phone or iPad is down on your desk. So your your face doesn't have to be dead center in front. So I guess they're just extending the the angle of the camera that they use for the face ID. I would just really like for the iPhone to be able to ha- have face ID unlock when you've got the device turned sideways. Because, you know, a lot of times you're watching a video or something, it's locked. It doesn't do that. No, it doesn't do that. Isn't that crazy? And I, I think okay. on the iPads, it does. The iPads, it, ha- it does on the iPad. Yeah. I do that often. Yeah. Right. But interesting. I never noticed that. And yeah. I, I assume that that's something they'll eventually add. And I, I don't know. I haven't heard anything about them adding that to the iPhone 11. I don't have one. So it's no, I just checked on mine. Oh, okay. So, well, speaking about face ID, an interesting story came up on Petapixel, which is a photography website that I follow. Someone found where a Japanese pop star lived by looking at reflections in her eyes in photos posted to social media. Now, what the person did is zoom in on the reflections and he recognized the train station where it was taken. So this was pretty much near where she lived. Um, He looked on Google Street View to find his way to the station. Once there, he waited for the woman and then followed her back to her home. Now, we've told people a couple of times, don't send geotag information uh, in your photos when you put them on social media. Geotag is your the precise coordinates where you've taken a photo. So if you take a picture at home, people will know it's at home. Uh, most apps tend to strip that information anyway. But this is actually, uh, you'll, you should really look at the photo in the show notes to see how small this was and how, to say it, how clever the guy was to find this person based on that tiny reflection. Yeah, it, this is a, kind of a scary thing to imagine that somebody could take what seems like a, a relatively innocuous photograph and be able to determine someone's location. So obviously this guy um, was had a fixation on, on this particular pop star and... Um, 
but just just I, I don't know. Like it, it doesn't. It's, it, it seems like science fiction, right? It doesn't seem like we have good enough camera technology or that once you post these photos to social media that the quality is going to be good enough that someone could zoom in on someone's eyeball and, and, and figure out where they are. That's just, it kind of blows my mind. Well, it does depend on the social media. I know yeah. that Facebook really um, downsamples photos to lower resolution, yes. so they're not very good. And I see this in a number of photo groups that I follow on Facebook. Um, but this is a Japanese social media service, and perhaps they use better quality photos. Yeah, could be. And, but it is something to be aware of. Um, you don't necessarily have to post full resolution photos on various sites. I mean, if it, it's a little more complicated with certain sites that do allow you to post the full resolution photos. And I would also be concerned about that particular site. If they're just letting you upload the originals and they're not making any changes to them, then they may also be geotagged like you were talking about. If someone takes a photo with their phone and then uploads it directly from, from the phone Unless they're doing something specifically to strip out geolocation data, then that also may be in in the picture. Yeah, and we've spoken in the past about the kind of information that you shouldn't put on social media. Um, if you include location information in Instagram or Twitter, for example, um, hey, I'm having a great time here. Well, it tells people two things. It tells people that you're here. But it tells people that you're not there, that you're not home. Right. And if someone's been following you and they're waiting for a chance to, I don't know, infiltrate your home to plant bugs or something, um, this is a good time for them to do so. So maybe if you're having a great time wherever you are, post the next day or I mean, it's kind of hard if you're on vacation in Greece, right? You're going to be posting photos in Greece for a week. And pretty much anyone who wants to know knows that you're away for a while. There's always this risk of putting too much information on social media. And you and I are of the age that we're aware of this. And I think younger people aren't really paying attention to it. They just think that it's just normal. Yeah. Those young whippersnappers, (laughs) but uh, you know, I, I will say that it, it, and it's not just that somebody may theoretically break into your home and plant bugs. I, I mean, people rob homes. I, I've you know heard of this happening. I've never actually yeah. known anybody that this happened to, but um, that is something that could happen. You know, you um, you can't necessarily even trust your friends on social media, even if it's Facebook, because somebody could have if there's somebody is coming after you in particular if they don't like you and they want to do something malicious to you um it's not really that difficult to figure out who your real life friends might be to to find a picture of them and you know create a, a fake account that looks exactly like your friend you add them because hey your friend sent you an invitation and now somebody else that has some information that normally you only share with friends, but they've sort of social engineered their way into getting information out of you. So I agree. Be very careful about mentioning when you're on vacation or things like that. It's better to post the pictures after you're back and say, here's some great pictures from my vacation. Okay. In another clever attack, and I spotted this on Twitter, um, someone reports a new two factor authentication scam says, 
they received a text message, presumably. My passcode was accidentally sent to your phone as I mistyped my phone number, which is similar to yours. So if your phone number is 555-1234, and I know you're about to get a passcode to log into PayPal, and I send you a message saying mine's 555-1235, would you fall for it and send me the code? See, what I don't understand is if the person was going to log into a service, they would have logged in already. And would that passcode work five minutes later for someone else trying to log in if someone's already logged in? Well, so I, I think the type of attack scenario here is is a scammer somehow knows your password or in the case of PayPal, this really bothers me, by the way, about PayPal, the way that they do their two factor code that they send to you via text message is that they first of all, they check your password. And if your password is successful, then they say, oh, good. Congratulations, you're logged into the first step. Now just click this to get your second yeah. factor code, which is incredibly stupid because that means that if somebody finds out my PayPal password, then the two factor is useless. Well, yeah, yeah, they they've already gone past the first step. Now it's uh now they know my password. And that's a little scary. And it makes this type of attack more plausible. Normally, what should happen is this. So if I logged into PayPal and it, you know, accepted my password, it should immediately send me a two-factor code. In the case of if you've got a, a phone number for your second factor and they're sending you a text message, that text message should be sent immediately. So you know... Rather than confirming that the password is the right one. Exactly, yeah. because that lets you know that someone has logged into PayPal you know, using right. your password, they know you, someone knows your password. And so, um, like for example, when I log into, uh, to Amazon, um, I know that they, they send a code immediately when you log in. Right. Um, right. that's the way it should work. But there are some sites where somebody could just play games and try to brute force your password or maybe guess, you know, based on some, known passwords they found in a password dump or something like that. And we'll talk a little bit more about passwords in the second part of the show. Right. Um, so anyway, yeah, this is, uh, it, it's not something that anyone should be scammed by because let, let's say that somebody uh, really claims that this is going on. They, ac- they accidentally put in your phone number for their second factor. So what? Just tell them, change the phone number that you put in. Yeah. Do it again. Do it again. Fix it because I'm yeah, not going to do this. Click, click the, I didn't get the code and right. enter your phone number again. Right. Because I'm not going to yeah. like help you out every single time, you know, that you need to put in a second factor. Uh, so yeah, not going to work. Okay. Um, in news, Firefox 70, you know, this makes me feel really old that we've got these version numbers of browsers that are up, <laughs> getting up to a hundred now, 70. Firefox 70 was released and continues to enhance the browser's privacy features, as well as bringing significant improvements to performance and power efficiency. And one of the things they brought in is something they call the Enhanced Tracking Protection System, and it has social tracking protection blocking cross-site tracking cookies from sites like Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Yeah, this is something that we're definitely seeing a trend toward. A lot of browser makers want to 
provide better tracking protection. Um, we've seen this from Apple, for example, with their intelligent tracking prevention technology, which they've iterated on a few times uh, in versions of Safari that have come out over the past few years. And so Firefox is, this is their answer to that. One thing that I noticed in Catalina, and we've mentioned in the past that I was using Ghostery, which is a tracker blocker in Safari, and Ghostery no longer works. You can only use Safari extensions that you get from the Mac App Store. And the Ghostery extension is Ghostery Lite, and you don't get many options with it. Um, as you did before. It doesn't display a list of all the trackers that you see. Um, when you go into custom uh, settings, it's you just block en masse advertising, site analytics, social media, etc. But I don't want to block everything. I don't mind having a Twitter share button because I use it, but I don't want a Facebook share button. And I'm pretty sure this is going to push me away from Safari. Yeah, there there were some changes in Safari 13 to how they handle ex, uh, extensions and whether they allow third party extensions um, that don't come through, you know, the Apple uh, extension gallery. And um, yeah, there, there are definitely. Uh, and by the way, this is in the name of making sure that all of those, you know, search engine hijackers and all those sort of things can't infect your uh your safari browser anymore and so like I, apple's coming from a good place you know they they want to make sure that that kind of stuff doesn't happen to safari as easily as it has in the past um but at the same time yes this also means that certain protection and and privacy enhancement uh, extensions also are not going to work anymore okay we're going to take a break and when we come back we're going to talk about passwords Long passwords. Really long passwords. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, Parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code PODCAST19 at checkout to save 40%. That's PODCAST19 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego. Devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, I mentioned before the break that we're going to talk about long passwords, really long passwords. And there's a reason for this. Google says that they've made a breakthrough that could change computing, according to the New York Times, that they have... Uh, achieved what they call quantum supremacy, which could allow new kinds of computers to do calculations at speeds that are inconceivable with today's technology. 
And they give an example. The Google device did in three minutes and 20 seconds a mathematical calculations that supercomputers could not complete in under 10,000 years. Now, when we talk about the security of passwords, in particular the length of passwords, the variety of characters they're used, um, one of the reasons we recommend longer passwords is that they're harder to crack. It's not like someone guessing, I don't know, I saw a movie recently and someone guessed the pin code because it was the date of something that the person really liked, maybe a World Series game or something like that. I'm talking about, you know, 10 or 12 or 14 character random passwords that are long and that take a long time to crack. Now, if three minutes and 20 seconds is all it took for the Google device to calculate this instead of 10,000 years, we may have to totally rethink the way we work with passwords, encryption, certificates, and in fact, everything. Right. There was something that uh, you sent me this week that I was looking at, an old infographic from years ago where somebody said, um, you know, they they had all of these ideas on how long it would take to crack certain passwords. And according to this old, you know, about five-year-old infographic, they basically were kind of saying that, if you had a nine character password, it would take six years to crack it. And if you had a 10 character password, it would take 4,000 years to crack it. And uh, I've always found these sort of gauges to be a little bit um, on the inaccurate side. I wouldn't put a lot of faith in the amount of time that they estimate for a lot of reasons. First of all, there's something called Moore's Law where, you know, the the power of computing um, increases exponentially over time. And so this is based on, you know, well, now five, four or five years ago, uh, this particular example. And if you put in, you know, the same password into password strength meters today, it'll say that these passwords can be brute forced a lot more quickly. Well, that's computing power. But now what we've found with this Google quantum breakthrough is that computing power um, is just blown away. This is not Moore's law anymore. This is, I don't know whose law. This is leaps and bounds beyond Moore's law. Now, quantum computing is a whole new thing. It's been talked about a lot in the realm of theoretical computer science for many years. We've been getting to the point where we're, we're really close to making some big breakthroughs. And so the, the things that have been announced by Google recently um, are a big step in that direction. Now, this is a little different from quantum quantum computing where everything that you do on the computer is now incredibly fast. What Google is doing specifically is they're targeting specific types of problems and using basically quantum technology to solve particular problems. But does it really matter? In this case, no, because if they're specifically designing something to uh, crack passwords, then um, now you, all of a sudden you need really, really complex passwords in order to avoid it getting broken. So we're going to link to a website um, called How Big Is Your Haystack and How Well Hidden Is Your Needle? It's on the Gibson Research Corporation uh, website. You can enter a password and see how much brute force would be required to analyze it. Now, the passwords that I use are 14-character random passwords generated by one password. So I took a new password. No, I did not put a password that I'm already using. And I popped it into this uh, test. And it said that an online attack scenario to crack this 
password, assuming a thousand guesses per second, would take 4.01 trillion centuries. And a massive cracking erase scenario, assuming a hundred trillion guesses per second, would take 40 centuries. Now, if the Google thing is is a scale of what was it, three hours to ten thousand years or whatever, I'm worried that my fourteen character passwords aren't going to be good enough anymore. Yeah, this is something that we should start considering, especially as quantum computing is like right on the cusp of, you know, of becoming a big, more widespread thing. Now, we're not really quite there in terms of like consumer applications yet, but, um, you know, we're, we're definitely going to see a lot more research in this area. And that also means that, you know, depending on your threat model. So if you're like imagining that a, government entity is going to try to break into your accounts, well, they have the money to build this technology and they could potentially use it against you. If you've really got somebody with, you know, a a virtually infinite amount of money, they can use this type of technology and, and break all your passwords. So I, I guess the best recommendation that we can have here is you know, if you're using a password manager, which we do recommend, use a, a, a trusted password manager and generate pseudo random passwords. Um, what, one of the, the challenges here is that you cannot necessarily use the same length of password on every website that you go to. Some sites, unfortunately, have a, a length restriction, um, which I recently saw one that limited the password to eight characters, and that's not oh enough. Oh, my. That's really bad. Yeah. yeah. An eight-character password. Now, if somebody knows that you have a maximum length of eight characters, um, that those passwords are going to be relatively easy to crack. I mean, that's just the way it is. And no- well, according to this password uh, calculator, if in the massive cracking array scenario, it would take 2.2 seconds in the on in the offline fast attack scenario. That's 100 billion guesses per second. It would take 37 minutes for eight characters this is random eight characters. Right. Yeah. So this is not good. Um, <laughs> ideally, I, w- I would say you probably want um I don't know. I tend to use passwords that are something like 24 characters or beyond, um, which according to this password haystacks page claims that the minimum, you know, online attack scenario would be 93.83 billion trillion trillion centuries, which I don't believe, by the way. But, you know, it gives you the general sense that the longer the passwords are and the more complex that they are then the longer theoretically it will take to crack regardless of the circumstance. So even if they're using quantum computing, it's not going to take anywhere near billions and trillions of centuries, but it won't be anywhere near as fast as, you know, a much shorter password. So one thing that you can get from this password calculator is understanding the importance of using different types of characters. Um, When you enter a password, it shows you the search space depth. Uh, and this is the number of possible characters for each character. If you're only using lowercase letters, that's 26. If you're using upper and lowercase, that's 52. If you add digits, that's another 10. And if you add symbols, that's another 33. So let's say that you're just using numbers for your password. Um, if I put in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, zero, um, 
even the online fast attack scenario would take 0.1 seconds <laughs> uh, because there's only 10 options. But however, if you put in um, random characters and symbols, then you've got 95 different options. Now, what I don't understand, and I think you need to explain to me here, is if someone's trying to crack a password, it's not like you see in the movies where you see these numbers turning and they find the first character and then the second one and the third one. How does using more characters make it easier to crack if there's no indication how many characters being used in the password? Yeah. In other words, whoever's cracking, it doesn't know if it's all digits, all lowercase, et cetera. Right. I, I guess the idea here is that um, it's, it really has to has to do with you want your passwords to be as complex as possible. And so like if imagine you're using an all lowercase password, um, if someone has reason to think that that you might be likely to use all lowercase passwords, um, then even if you're putting in a string of all lowercase, ra- you know, random letters, um, if somebody has any reason to think that that might be the type of password that you're using now, it's there's not very much um, relatively to to search if they're just brute forcing it and trying to guess all the possible. So they can limit their brute force algorithm to just lowercase if they know that it's just lowercase. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's it's and that's you know with every single one of these and there's many others uh, from other companies too um, that these password strength analyzers and none of them are really perfect. No, when you're in, when they're in the billions and trillions of centuries, I can accept that there are some rounding errors. Well, exactly. Yeah. One thing I do like about this password haystacks page is that they do admit that not everything on this page should be taken at face value because there are, uh, certain problems with, you know, kind of how cer- some of these calculations are being done. For example, if you're using a three-letter dictionary word, and we'll talk more about dictionaries in a moment, um, but if you're using a three-letter dictionary word, even if you've changed it so you've got a capital, a lowercase, and maybe a number substituting a letter, and then a whole bunch of, uh, you know, uh, special characters after that, um, the problem that you have here is that you're still using a dictionary word. And so if you've just got the same, you know, uh, special character repeating and you do, and you put the same special character repeating on the end of all your passwords, just to sort of boost the strength, then you have somewhat of a problem here because you're still using a dictionary word. Um, and, and that's not a good practice. Okay, so explain exactly what a dictionary word is. Is it something that I'm going to find in the dictionary on my Mac? Um, maybe and maybe not. A dictionary word when it comes to passwords is not necessarily what you people usually think of when they think of a dictionary. You usually think of, you know, Webster's Dictionary and real words that you find in there. You, you're not normally going to find a lot of proper nouns uh, these capitalized names and, and things like that. But in a dictionary attack, what attackers do is they will put anything that is, um, a common word or name 
or common dates or even common passwords. So I love you is not a word as we normally think of a word, right? but that is a common password. And so it will be a word, quote unquote, in a password dictionary. So if someone is using a dictionary attack, they're going to pre-fill it with all of the really common passwords that a lot of people tend to to use. So if, uh, for example, you know, it might be your favorite sports team, right? They And a lot of people will use that as a password. And maybe they'll pad it with, they'll put a couple of numbers on the end. But if it's just a birth year or, you know, maybe the year that that team won the Super Bowl or whatever it might be, that's not a great password because it's very likely that that could have been used by somebody else and may end up in a in a dictionary used for attacking. Or, um, you know, it, it's just not a great password to begin with because, again, yeah. you're, kind, you're using something that's well-known and then just tacking on a couple of numbers on the end doesn't make for a very strong password at all. Right. So any common string of characters is something that we could consider to be in a dictionary. Right. And I would suggest too, you know, even just putting a two or four digit number on the end of it doesn't make it that much stronger because there are enough people who are just going to put a birth year, you know, of their significant other, their child or something like that on the end of it or a birthday. These are very, very common things. A graduation year is another one um, that people often use, unfortunately, with things as sensitive as passwords because they think it makes it stronger. Well, I'm adding a whole extra two characters and now it's not just letters. Now I've got numbers. So that makes it great. But that thing is that yeah. so many people just tack on two numbers to the end of a password that it really doesn't make it that much better. Okay. Um, I noticed this is a very interesting link uh, in the bottom of the page here. It's a link to someone's blog where they have built a home computer that was able to calculate, that was able to brute force 33.1 billion passwords per second. And this was in 2010. Now, as we were talking above about some of the uh, some of the attempts, so like an eight character password would take um, thirty seven minutes at a hundred billion guesses per second. Well, someone's home computer can already do that hundred billion guesses per second. If it was thirty three billion in two thousand ten, it's easily gotten past that now. Right. So basically, the takeaway from this is use long passwords. And if you're going to make a password really long anyway, uh, and you don't want to reuse passwords, which you should never do, as we've brought up many times on the show, um, then what I would suggest is use the maximum password length that they allow for that site. So if they tell you it's 40 characters, you know what? Use a pseudo random password generated in your app, whatever you know app you you prefer, and make it the full 40 characters. Um, it's unfortunate that we have these limitations, uh, like, you know, why pick a number like that? I think one of the reasons that they do that in general is because they're trying to sort of prevent people from putting too much data in a form and maybe, you know, causing a problem with their website. But the way that passwords are supposed to be stored, theoretically, it really shouldn't matter. Because what should happen is that they're creating a hash of your password. So there shouldn't be any maximum length 
of, you know, because the hash is always going to be a fixed size in reality. And we've talked about hashes yeah, before. Yeah, and, and a hash is not your password. It's going to be some um, mathematical operation performed on your password. Exactly, right? right. So a hash... So it's like a factorial one times another times another to get a result. Yeah, essentially. And so a hash is always going to be the same length, um, regardless of whatever you put into it. The reason that you want to use these complex passwords and longer passwords, though, is because it makes it significantly more difficult for somebody to happen upon your hash, you know, by putting in whatever. And and that's so most websites and most services are are properly hashing passwords, which is good. Um there are, of course, sites that, uh, especially older sites that were designed in, you know, a century ago, almost in computing years. A century ago, <laughs> yes. Um, that may actually still be storing actual passwords. And, of course, there are lots of problems with that. But um, uh, w- whenever I see things like uh, a website that says they will email you your password if you forgot your password, that's a, yeah. It, it, unless they're emailing yeah. you a temporary password, which sometimes which is the which case. Sometimes yeah. is the case. But if they're actually emailing you your password in plain text, that means they're not storing your password properly. And there are still sites that are doing that. Okay. Um, the, the one last tip that you can get from this website is how important it is to include uppercase, lowercase digits, and symbols, because having one of each, a minimum of one of each, means that the search depth has to be the maximum search depth. Even if you only have a single symbol, um, it makes your password in, incredibly more secure than if you have no symbol at all. Right. Yeah. And and. You know, there are going to be people who will somewhat disagree with some of the findings on this page, but uh, there's a lot of really good information in here. And they do talk about here are some problems with this and with any of these password, you know, length uh, complexity validators. But this, the whole point of this exercise is to give you sort of a general idea uh, and really to drive home the point that length is very important when it comes to, to password security. Okay, so if you've enjoyed this episode and you want some advice from us, you can send us all your passwords and we will analyze them to tell you if they're secure. No, don't even do that. I'm just kidding. If anyone suggests anything like that, don't ever do it. Um, but I am now worried about my the security of my passwords with this Google thing. This is going to take a few years to trickle down into standard computing. Um, but And this is why Apple's system on an iPhone that after 10 uh, passcodes, it locks the phone is useful because that prevents brute force um, password attempts. So until next week, we're going to stay extra secure and we're going to recalculate all our passwords and make them really long. Josh, stay secure. All right. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac podcast, the voice of Mac security with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long to get every weekly episode be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>